This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning, y'all. Good morning. Hey, hey. I never know what to say here, just so you guys know. So I try to, like, be unique. It's like, hey, 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 <laughs> hey, what's up, guys? I've been queen. I've been... <laughs> I've been waiting for one of you to be like, what's up? You know, what's because, up? <laughs> <laughs> what's that I, from? I gotta, uh, isn't that from a commercial? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, Capti Bapti. Yeah, isn't that from a commercial of some sort of product that some I've product. never seen? or been around ever before. Um, well, uh, yeah, so today we're dealing with some family drama. Um, y'all's families are perfect, yeah? Perfect. Yeah? I got to say, though, we're pretty low drama at the, the Wilkin House. Apple? Yeah, we're pretty low what's, drama. What's the, like, I, based off of y'all's Instagram, I would imagine maybe there have been some puzzle arguments. Matt, why did you move that puzzle? <laughs> or... Or you put, you finished that puzzle without me. I wanted to be here when the last piece went in. That's my that's my guess of like what a Wilkin family argument's like. We actually have had some puzzle disagreements throughout the pandemic. Um, there is some disagreement about whether one begins with the edge pieces or not. Uh, about whether one should sort different pieces into piles based on their content. Um, so yeah, or whether someone can have the spiritual gift of puzzle working, which I would say some do and some don't. Okay. Um, who is, uh, can you out the, the, the best and the worst puzzler of your household? I don't know if any of it, I mean, it depends on the puzzle. I think we're all pretty invested. Uh, well, I mean, some of us more than others, but like Jeff has the Wilkin way that things are to be done. And then I also have my own opinions on the way that things are to be done. And sometimes we don't, we don't land in the same place regarding puzzle working, mm. but we do still love one another. Ah, uh, yes. And that's the real puzzle, isn't it, guys? <laughs> wow. <laughs> On that note, I don't even think we're going to, I don't think we need any more banter. I think that was the perfect, the perfect segue into dealing with the, the family drama we find in the story of Abraham. And like I said, on that first episode out, um, I'm going to refer to this guy as Abraham and I'm going to call Sarah, <laughs> Sarah. I mean, listen, if somebody's got a problem with it, slide into my DMs and you can tell me and I'll just ignore it. But I'm going to call him Abraham and I'm going to call her Sarah because I'm not going back and forth with this Sarah Abraham stuff. Um, so, uh, but we here we are with Abraham and we covered in the last episode, the initial call. We, we found out that Abraham... Uh, but kind of as we meet him for the first time is in Ur, which would have been in Babylonia at the time. Uh, and that he is called to make a journey to leave that space, to leave that land and to go to a new land that God is going to give him. Um, and he does that, but he doesn't do it by himself. Uh, he's a 75 year old man when he departs and he takes with him some people. One, uh, one of those people is Lot uh, and Lot's family. And he brings with him Sarah. And uh, we're going to find out that for Sarah and for Lot and Abraham, it's not a love triangle, but it is messy. It is a messy situation between these three. Uh, all of them do foolish things. Uh, but right out the gate, Abraham is going to do something that just seems mind-boggling. I mean, it seems ludicrously dumb. I just got to say it. Like, <laughs> it just seems so dumb. Uh, so let's just, if I could, let me just tell you one part of the story and then we'll open up with a big question and then we'll start getting into some of the serious stuff. So 
what we found was that Abraham was on this journey with Sarah, with Lot, with some of the family there. And it says in verse 10 of chapter 12, there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. This is going to sound familiar at the end of the book too, isn't it? Mm -hmm. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Well, thank you, Abraham. <laughs> no, I, that's not what it says. <laughs> but I just, I'm just using some imagination here. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm wheels off right now. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Um, wow, very low view of the Egyptians, Abraham. Um, say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Okay, there you go. So Abraham set Sarah up to go, hey, we have to go into Egypt. You know, these crazy Egyptians, if they find out that you're my wife, I mean, you're drop dead gorgeous. Uh, I mean, I just, this is like Abraham being the pastor who's constantly talking about his smoking hot wife. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I keep thinking about. Yeah. I mean, Abraham was the first cheesy pastor to be like, yeah, you know, my smoking hot wife over here. And then he says, pretend you're my sister when we go into Egypt, because if not, they're going to straight up murder me. Yeah. So there are so many ironies going on here. First of all, he's got a major case of what I like to call the I me, my minds in this section. And if you if you pay attention to the pronouns, it's all I me, my mind in, re in relation to Sarah. And we're going to see some funny things in the text where this repetition of Sarah, his wife, and how it gets used even by the Lord when he's speaking um, to Abram. And I do use Abram and Sarai because, you know, I just think it's important in a way that Kyle apparently doesn't. But um, also, it is very tricky and we're going to screw it up. So be patient with us. But he says, say you are my sister, that it, may that it may go well with me because of you. And the real irony here is that if he viewed her as his sister, like in a, in a spiritual sense, he would not... He would not put her in this position if he if he were practicing the one another's in in the way that we understand them. If he were loving his neighbor as he loved himself, he would not ask this of her. Um, but and as we think, I, as I think we see with the typical smoking hot wife pastor scenario, um, he's 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 actually uh, he sees her beauty as something that adds to his value. It's not about whether she has value or not. It's about his value. Yeah, this, no, you're absolutely, I think you're absolutely right. It's like the way that Abraham deals with her is immediately transactional in this passage. Yeah. It's risk reward. Uh, I'm sure, and you're right that that is value accrued to Abraham, her beauty, and that it could be threatened, his life could be threatened and that value could be removed as they enter into a new land. I mean, it's just a very transactional, objectifying approach to dealing with not just your spouse, but your now sister in covenant fidelity to what God is calling them to do. It goes on to say, when Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So Abraham nailed it. They did think she was pretty. Uh, and when the prince, princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And then it says this, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, I just have to say, when I was looking at this uh, yesterday, 
thinking about today, I was blown away by how closely this relates to Israel's whole story in Egypt. Mm. Yeah. They come into Egypt because of a famine in the land and they walk out having plundered the Egyptians. Like they walk away with all these things that Pharaoh gives to yeah. them. It's an incredible thing. Well, and this is why we have to pay attention to authorship, right? Because this is this is Moses who is going to write that later story. And he's writing this story with an eye toward that later story. He wants us to see that rhythmic repetition. Um, and so we start with famine in the land, which is unexpected, right? That's we would not expect that God would call Abram somewhere and then there would be lack when he arrives there. And then it's immediately followed up with Abram went down to Egypt, which is such a significant phrase. Um, um, this original audience would have thought, uh-oh, why? Because they just came out of Egypt exactly. and they know that that is a big term. Uh, you know, you find in uh, Isaiah 31.1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas at the beginning of chapter 12, we saw that Abram was called to forsake the place of comfort. We now see him seeking the place of comfort, the uh, the moment that adversity presents. So there's just a ton that's happening here. Yeah. Not yeah. only that, he was just told at the beginning of chapter 12 that God was going to bring offspring uh, from his his loins, his loins, you know, that his line was going to be the one that was going to bless the whole world. And the first thing he does is take his wife and hand her to another man, which is just not awesome. It's basically, you know, saying, well, you know, so what if, uh, if any offspring that comes from our marriage might be attributed to a foreign king? Yeah, it's a, yeah, golly. Why, let me just, let's just, can I just ask, why are Old Testament families so jacked up? All families are, all families are pretty jacked up. <laughs> so that when I work a puzzle, I can feel better about myself. <laughs> no, I mean, I think one, the reason I asked that question, obviously, beyond just being funny about it, is that I think a lot of times, and Jen, you mentioned this in the first episode, there's a lot of temptation in these stories to start to principalize characters. I mean, that's a very strong way of going through the Old Testament. It's just like, be a David, be an Abraham, be a Jacob. Here's 12 life lessons from the story of Abraham, character profiles. I just want you to say principialize again. Yeah, I mean, principialize. Mm. I nailed it the first time and the second time. I'm pretty proud. Did you make that word up or is that a real word? I have no idea, but if it's not a real word, I've coined it in Oxford Dictionary. You can credit me for it. So thank you. Uh, it's, it's in a published record. But um, uh, I think it's important for us to pause here and, and just answer a question that we're going to need to answer and come back to multiple times as we deal with Genesis 12 through 50. What is the genre that we're reading? And what are some of the ways that we should really consider this Uh when it comes to what is descriptive in the Bible and what is prescriptive in the Bible, right? Are we to look at Abraham's story here and go, wow, this is prescriptive. Uh, This is exactly what I should do. If I'm in a foreign land and I feel like my wife might be uh, a liability, I should give her to the ruler and I'll get to plunder that ruler from his goods when God curses him. JT, is that how we're supposed to read this? What genre are we reading and how do we distinguish description and prescription? 
we can certainly find some prescriptive things in historical narrative, like large themes. So we don't want to say that anything that's historical narrative, which this is, that we can't find principles that should be prescribed for living. There are things, but in, but it does not mean that we should prescribe all things. This is a descriptive event uh, going on here in Genesis chapter 12, and then continuing to 13 and 14 as the family continues on in its mass chaos, uh, that, that is simply describing. I would even say, I don't want to, this feels like I'm tying the bow to like nicely and neatly. I'm not trying to do that, but that God can even use very, very sinful, wicked, broken things and broken families to bring about good. We see this in basically every story in the Old Testament. I think about Joseph, what you've intended for evil, God intended for good. So God is going to take this and bring blessing and good out of it, but it does not mean that therefore we should act sinfully or do things that would be out of line of God's uh, design in order to be blessed, because this is something that is, that is I mean, it's just it's wretched. Well, I think there are some clues too, to help us navigate what's happening. So, you know, some contextual clues. So like Abram lies here and we've talked elsewhere about the significance of lying in the Bible and when do you condemn it and when do you actually sometimes even uh, applaud it. And, and this, this scene here with Abram, and, and it's going to be Moses who's going to write many of those scenes for us. He's going to write some of these deception scenes. And we've talked about how a lie that is done to preserve life is often seen as a, a good lie, if there's, such a, if, if there's such a term. The lie that we see Abram um, articulating here is given as an act of self-preservation, not as an act of preservation of someone else's more valuable life. And so that's why we can look mm-hmm. here and see. And then also obviously the fact that God then sends a negative uh, consequence to to restore things to the way that they should be um, is telling us that this is a lie on which God does not look and, and, and condone or even say, you know, this is done for, the, for righteous reasons. But one of the things that we see in this story is the outworking of exactly that bless and curse thing Mm -hmm. that we just heard about at the Mm -hmm. beginning of chapter 12, right? Because God told Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I am going to curse. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is basically what Pharaoh says. It says, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that you uh, that she was your sister? Why, you know, so or why, she was your wife? Excuse me, not Abraham's sister. Um, uh, why did you tell me that she? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? I mean, Pharaoh is voicing exactly the repercussions. He's is experiencing them, and he's responding to exactly what God told Abraham would happen, which is that those who dishonor you, I'm going to curse, and Pharaoh gets the curses here. And one thing I, that I noticed, you know, I love reading the Bible, like stories you've read before and seeing new things. Mm-hmm. When I was when I was reading this uh, recently, something I saw for the first time related to these plagues uh, and also something that, that uh, Moses says in verse 10, it says, so there's a famine in the land. Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because of the famine in the land. So famines last a long time mm-hmm. and so do plagues. And like plagues aren't a week or a day. And the Bible says that several plagues were sent to Pharaoh And so one of the things that I was struck with here is like, this wasn't like Abram lied for a day or a week or a month. It's possible that this, this ruse went on for a decade, like a long time that, that he is willfully allowing his wife to be with someone else to save his own skin. 
And I, one of the things I was thinking of there, and Jen, I'm sure you've thought about that. You're like, you just saw that, JT. Uh, one of the things, one of the things that I, I that I think in my own life, I was just struck by, like, if we're thinking about discipleship, is how um, I think I often assume that when I sin, I, I will be quickly you know, cut to the heart, struck by it, uh, want to repent. And the reality is, is that we, we can walk in wicked rebellion, perhaps and not even know it for a very, very, very long time. And just the, the, the reality of, of wanting to be godly people, holy people, walk in sanctification, to walk in repentance when we are sinning and, and never to be calloused of heart. And clearly what we see here is a callousness, uh, towards the Lord and towards his wife and towards his obligation as a husband to love and care for her. And, and, and here we just see a very, very long sinful rebellion. And, and, and that principle illustrated that personal sin always results in collateral suffering. So it's not, you know, it's Abram's sin spills over, not just onto Sarah, but if plagues have come upon the Egyptian people due to to no fault of really to no fault of their own. I mean, obviously they're, they're set up in contrast to the people or to the, to the beginnings of the people of God, but there is suffering, widespread suffering as a result of, of this decision that Abram makes. And this, he doesn't just place his wife in danger. He, he causes widespread suffering on an entire people group who are at least at this portion of the narrative presented to us as those who have the moral high ground in the story. And that's what's so crazy. And, you know, we're going to get to see the character development of Abram, but I think what we're supposed to take from this is that at this point in the story, he's still far more pagan than he is Yahweh follower uh, in in the way that he is um, living his life and the decisions that he's making. Um, He doesn't consult the Lord when there's a famine in the land. He takes matters into his own hands, seeks to come up with a solution that is, uh, that that places others uh, at risk. And and, and is deceptive. So he is the one carrying all of the marks, uh, if you will, of the unrighteous line, even though he is the one who is going to be the origin of the of the righteous line. And we talked a little bit last episode about how Abraham and uh, Christ are both mediators of a covenant and the covenant with Abraham is is significant. But even right out of the gate, what you're getting a picture right here that the distinction between them is vast. I mean, Abraham is a mediator who lays down his wife's life to end up cursing mm-hmm. the nations, whereas Christ is a mediator who lays down his life to rescue his bride and bless the nations. Mm-hmm. I mean, like right out of the gate, you get an immediate difference between these two mediators. Kyle, that's so good. Well, you forgot it from your study. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> that's actually that's actually me quoting from the forthcoming book. <laughs> But there is, um, we, we're immediately seeing that this mediator is, uh, he is going to be, a, he's a blessed elect exile. He is God's chosen man. It is God's chosen family, but it's faltering. And God mm-hmm. is going to bring them through because this is, well, election is not just, at least in, uh, if we could dive into a little bit of reform theology here, election is unconditional. And Abraham's life is a demonstration of that, not just in that God chooses him in the eyes of the world, but it is not predicated on 
uh, it's not that God looks into the future and sees that Abraham is going to yield X amount of righteousness and says, that's the guy I'll choose. The election of Abraham and our election as children of God is unconditional. There are no caveats to it. And this story immediately points that out. When somebody asks, why would God have chosen Abraham if he immediately, his kind of first act in the story is to do something selfish, wicked, foolish, and entitled? Well, we could ask the same question of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Why has God chosen us? I mean, I I can remember walking out. My mom says that she can remember the night when I experienced salvation, and I remember it vividly. And she can say that, and I, I, always, I always asked her, I said, Mom, what was the next day like? And she said, well, you disobeyed me immediately first thing in the morning. <laughs> so it's <was> like, <laughs> but guess what? I had been rescued. My election wasn't predicated on the fact that the next morning I wake up and I am the most submissive, obedient son that has ever existed. God chose me. And I have to say, grace, 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 grace. And that's what Abraham's story is as well. Because I think people could read this and be like, Abraham doesn't seem special. Yeah, neither are you. Neither are you. And also that that what it means to be chosen is that we're thou set on the path of to learn wisdom. And he hasn't learned wisdom yet. He's going to learn wisdom. He's going to learn it both through mistakes and he's going to learn it through uh, actually God just imparting it to him. Uh, But that's actually also our story is that we're chosen by God, but we still lack wisdom and we must ask of God who gives to us liberally. And so uh, Abram, I think, is here learning his dependence on God and his need for wisdom. Although we'll see, unfortunately, we see this pattern actually uh, reassuringly uh, from a personal standpoint, we see this pattern repeat. Pete. Um, uh, I was talking to someone about the idea of wisdom just the other day, and he was saying, uh, I learned the wisdom and then I forget it immediately and I have to relearn it again. And so we'll see that, I think, in Abram's story as well. So in verse 16, and I don't want to rush past this, we hear that, okay, so Pharaoh dealt well with Abraham and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. I have heard, and I don't know that you have heard this, but is this where we believe that Hagar entered Abraham's household? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when we get a little further into the story, you're going to see that Abram has a shift in the way that he thinks about taking spoils uh, when we get to the story of Lot's rescue. Uh, but here he's like, oh, great. Thanks for all the stuff. Yeah. And, and you know, again, just remember that the original audience, every time they hear Egypt, it will be like a knife to the heart. I mean, they are, they remember Egypt. They are 40 years away from Egyptian slavery it is a fresh memory. So the alarm bells just go off for them like crazy. And it's always mentioned specifically so that they will have that. Uh, and, you know, there've been other hints too, because we've had repetitions of Canaan, Canaanites. It's all of this setup for um, Israel walking into the land of Canaan to take possession of it. And so they have to learn a lesson about Egypt so that they can walk into Canaan with the right eyes. So it says that uh, Pharaoh sent uh, Abraham away with his wife and all that he had. So chapter 13, we're going to see that this is going to kind of continue to play itself out. It says, Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Hmm, I wonder why. Hmm. Maybe it must have been all that stuff he just got from Pharaoh. Uh, And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and I. So he's backtracking now to Mm -hmm. the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. 
And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between their herdsmen at the time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So here's what's fascinating. When, we, when you get this story immediately, you get all these promises to Abraham. And then by the time that they're actually heading back to this place, this destination, they're wealthy. They're so wealthy, the Abraham and Lot are, they can't even live in the land. So we're not talking about like, I know that's hard for us to imagine, but it's like, I think that when we think about people in the ancient Near East, especially wandering around or walking around, we almost just imagine them in like sackcloth and ashes. Like they're barely <laughs> making it, you know, like these are two thriving families now that have enough independent wealth that they can actually consider not living next to one another, which in the ancient Near East is crazy. Like people group together to consolidate strength. Abraham and Lot are looking at the land and they're essentially saying, not only can the land cannot hold us, but we have the option to separate from one another right now, uh, which would, which would signal there is great strength among these two households at this point. They have accumulated some power, some wealth, some people. Uh, in the ancient Near East, they have accumulated some men who can work the fields and who can fight. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you need. And we know they have those men because in a moment, when Abraham goes to rescue Lot from trouble, he's going to bring with him, it says, 318, I think, men of fighting age and ability. So these are big groups of people now. Yeah. And I think also we're seeing, you know, mo money, mo problems. They, they, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> what did we see? We saw... <laughs> I was not expecting you to say that. Did you like my delivery? And yeah. I, Engineer Brad, please clip that. That is my new Jen Wilkin text message <laughs> alert. Mo money. <laughs> so here. Kyle, you're typically like the cultural reference person, but here on this podcast, <laughs> we have had Jen Wilkins sing ACDC yep. and now quote P. Diddy. Yeah. I actually don't think the ACDC recording has been made public, JT, but thank you for- oh, We've talked about it. Oh, yeah. Uh, not one of my prouder moments. I'm just or saying I'm it? proud of you. No, I'm proud of you. <laughs> yeah. So back to the text. Um, first, we see that famine causes strife, right? And then now we're seeing that riches cause strife. So I think what we're not seeing here is it's bad to have money and it's good to not have money. But but what we are seeing is that he's just he's got a lot of glommers on now. Like he's got a he's got a lot of people he's got to move around. He's got a lot of responsibilities. And also, frankly, they become a bigger target to their enemy, to the people of the region. You know, the more space they take up, the more resources that they require. And so um, they are painting a target on themselves and some sense, which we're going to see immediately be the case. Yeah, they got a lot going on. And it says that Abraham says, hey, let, let, let's settle this, right? I mean, I'm not going to read everything here, but like, let me just give you this snapshot. Abraham comes to Lot and it's like, listen, uh, let's not have this dissension. Um, the whole land is in front of us. You go your way. I'll go my way. Let's figure it out. And so it says that Lot lifted up his eyes. He saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a little mosaic editorial <laughs> note there. Just in like, because the people, you're right, because the people of Israel probably like, no, we know about that land. 
And then good. Mo- yeah, Moses is like, yeah, this is pre Sodom. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. And then Abraham settles in the land of Canaan, while Lot goes and settles among the cities of the valley. And he moved his tent. It says as far as Sodom. And we get a note. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We're going to hear a lot about Sodom and Gomorrah in some of the chapters ahead. But the Lord tells Abraham to close out this chapter and then we'll speak to it for a moment and, 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 and land the plane. But he says, lift, lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are. This is verse 14. Northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if, if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and he came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So this is a big moment. Abraham and Lot have been on this journey together. They've accumulated great wealth and great resources in the process. And now they're splitting up and Lot is going one direction and Abraham is going the other. What what are we really to do with some of what we find here? Is this significant? Because it, it's going to ripple in Abraham's story in a big way. Yeah, well, I think we saw Abram falter in his faithfulness to the Lord. And now we're going to see the implications of having those in his household falter. You know, it's going to be, hey, you're either all in or it's not going to work. And um, there's that watchword again. It says that the land that was chosen by Lot uh, in verse 10 looked like the land of dun, 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 Egypt. So we're supposed to understand that Lot is drawn toward uh, comfort and uh, the Green Valley. He wants he wants all of the things that drew Abram into Egypt in the first place. Um, and then it says that he moved his tent as far as Sodom. There's, a, there's another translation of that that says he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And you hear just the, the, you can hear his desire in that, I think a little bit, that he is yearning for all of these markers that, um, that Yahweh rejects as human flourishing, so to speak, if we were going to borrow training program language as we love to do. So he's flirting with sin and he's within, he's within Abram's household and that's just not going to work. Meanwhile, you've got Abram settling in the land of promise and God giving him basically a walkthrough of it, almost like one would do when buying, buying a new house. Hmm. I, I think in verse 10, we're also supposed to be reminded of Eve in the garden. A lot hmm. of commentators, at, when they look at verse 10, the same word, uh, it's found in Genesis chapter three, as we see here in verse 10, Lot looked out and saw. Yeah. Uh, the same, the same language, exact same language is used for Eve when she looks and sees the tree mm-hmm. and it's desirous to them. And mm-hmm. the consequences are the same. It's a, it's a falling away from the purposes of God in exile. And what does mm-hmm. he see? He sees that this is like you just said, Jen, this is good land. And it's, it's, a, it's a land that you think would lead to flourishing, but it doesn't. And we see that ironically, this becomes the land of fire uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah as God rains down his judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that's fascinating as this chapter ends is that we get this. So whereas Lot is moving, like you've said, Jen, towards flirting with evil, flirting with wickedness, Abraham is like uh, God is reassuring Abraham, even after his failure, the failure we know about and all the failures we don't, I'm still, I'm still going to give this land to you. I'm going to give this land Mm -hmm. to you. 
and to your offspring. And it's going to be, your offspring is going to be basically innumerable. You're not, you're, nobody's going to be able to count up your offspring. And, you know, there's an interesting thing um, I was reading and, and I don't know where it was at. So I'm, I'm riffing now off of somebody else's material that I cannot cite, but it's not mine. But I was reading an Old Testament scholar and it may have been Bruce Waltke, but essentially they were talking about that this walking of the land that Abraham does here is significant because it was very customary in ancient Near Eastern practice when land was transacted. Yeah. That the person who would be receiving the land would walk the breadth of the land. He would mm-hmm. go up and down, left and right. Essentially, this north, south, east, west thing was kind of a cultural custom of surveying the land that God will give you. And Abraham has journeyed through this land once before. Like he's already kind of been through a portion of this land on his way to Egypt, right? So he's already kind of been through a block of it, but now he's walking it kind of end to end, so to speak, and he's beginning to settle there. Uh, And it says that he built an altar to the Lord. And I think maybe this is interesting for people who are reading the Bible and they're they're not as familiar. Maybe a listener is listening and they're going, why would Abraham have built an altar to the Lord? Because we're going to hear this, that he's going to set up these altars to the Lord. And we understand vaguely the idea of an altar, that it has it's religiously involved. It means worship. It's like it's tied into religious kind of stuff. But I don't think the average person reading their Bible knows why that would be significant in a moment like this. Why is Abraham doing this? Is it just an act of worship and he's just marking this place and through the altar he's worshiping the Lord? Is that, is that all we're to see here? Well, I would imagine JT has some thoughts on this. I, this is the third altar he's built thus far. Um, and this one is, as, as a previous altar, it's built actually um, by oaks. Like we're going to see that happen, you know, that the, this under the spreading oak trees that he's building these altars. And that actually would have told his original audience that he is building altars in places that were previously used for pagan worship. So he's walked the property and now he's establishing God, Yahweh's ownership of the property when he, when he um, builds the altar and offers sacrifices to the one true God. JT, you have anything else on that? No, the only thing I would add, and I, we've already talked about them in some other episodes, but the Bible Project has a good podcast on what I'm about to talk about. They actually did a whole series on trees and altars in the Bible. Oh, good. And specifically like how often trees come up and then how often altars come up. And so you've got a tree in Genesis chapter three here. You've got the oaks. You've got God revealing himself in a bush in Exodus. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have the ultimate revelation of God and the ultimate altar of God found in the cross. And so I think we're meant to see all of these small pictures of altars and then ultimately the tree of God, the ultimate altar leading and pointing to the cross. So here we just see a shadow of of ultimately what will be sacrificed to God through a tree on the ultimate altar. I think we're also seeing that theme of wisdom developed where Lot is following the wisdom of the world. Like he he's looking at what's, you know, as far as human measurement is concerned, is the ideal piece of land and settling there. And then you've got uh, godly wisdom beginning to operate in Abram where he looks around and he chooses the land that God has sent him to uh, after backtracking. Like that sounds like sanctification to me, you know, oh man, I, I screwed it up, but it doesn't mean I'm not chosen. It means I get to retrace my steps and begin to operate according to godly wisdom instead of worldly wisdom. And the Lord um, perseveres with me and, and proceeds with his promised work. 
Well, we've covered some of the family drama, and there's certainly more of it left to be covered. We're going to be heading to Genesis chapter 14 next session, looking at a strange priest. I don't know. I don't know that we've ever, like, we've been asked about Melchizedek, but I don't know that we've ever had, like, a real discussion about our views on Melchizedek. I think it came up in a lightning round question one time. I know we fought over this. JT, do you remember fighting? Jen, do I remember fighting with you? They all all start blending together. (laughs) But we're happy to fight again. Happy to fight again. Speaking of family drama. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, hey, thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you're looking for us, you can find us on social media at Knowing Faith Podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, or you can look into Patreon where we have some great behind the scenes stuff and some cool special things for folks over there. Grace and peace.